first order of business today, I would like for you to participate in a little survey with me. Will you participate in a survey with me? Correct answer. How many of you like party mix? As in chips, cheesies, pretzels, mix. Some of you, some of you are reluctantly raising your hands. That's okay. No judgment. How many of you like uh, trail mix? Like nuts and berries and seeds and things. I was, more of you like trail mix than party mix. I hate to break it to the trail mix crew. We're a nut-free facility, so if we have like a to-do up in here and there's snacks, it'll sooner be the party mix than the trail mix and you'll have to suffer through. But if that's as bad as you've got it, I think we got it pretty good. Now, you guys know the deal. With party mix and trail mix, how it is, you reach into the bag. If you're like me, you reach a number of times into the bag or the container and you pull out different things. You pull out a variety of different little pieces. They're not all the same. You don't want them to be all the same. As a matter of fact, I can't think of anything worse at all in the human experience than reaching into the bag of party mix and pulling out a handful of only pretzels. Is there anything worse? Somebody gasped in the room today. That is the appropriate answer. It's the very worst. Perish the thought. We're in the Gospel of John right now. We're going through this amazing, incredible book of the Bible, verse by verse. This is week number four. Today we're in John chapter two, and it's going to be a little bit of a party mix, trail mixy sort of a day. What I mean by that is, though there's sort of one main point in this text, we're going to be talking about a whole number of different things. When you drive home later and you're trying to recall what the sermon was about, you'll say, oh yeah, it was about like eight things. And that's good. Because as we've established, we all either like party mix or trail mix. So you should like this sermon really well then. The, the standard has been set. Anyway, you can turn in your Bible to John chapter 2 verse 1. Like I said, there's one main point in this text today. And that main point, though we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of different things, that main point is going to come out. And that main point is ultimately about one main person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is who we're talking about today. Jesus is who we are emphasizing and highlighting. Jesus is who we need to see and regard and honor and cherish and lift high and obey and love and serve and worship. That is Jesus. Jesus is the reason that we're here today, in fact, is it not? Good. So what I want to do, I want to read John chapter 2. We're going to just read verses 1 to 12 all at once here to set things up. And then we're going to reach our hand into the party mix and we're going to see what comes out. So all right, it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, somebody else gasps at that. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? We're going to talk about that verse. Okay, we'll talk about that. My hour has not yet come, he said. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, in other words, people are a little tipsy, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You ready to, do, ready to pick through this? Is that okay? Good? Let's do it then. Verse 1, it starts out by saying, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana in Galilee was not a prominent major happening town. It was a little bit of a podunk little place with not much happening. Maybe you grew up in a town like that. So much so that we don't today know actually for sure where Cana is. You guys know how it works with modern archaeology and research and excavation and these big digging projects. People have gone to this part of the world and they've uncovered evidence of, oh, here's where this city used to be and where this building was and where this ruler lived and where this event happened. Well, there's not really much archaeological evidence about Cana to, to actually help us pinpoint where it is. Not a very large central happening place. Even in Galilee is the region that Cana was apparently in. Even Galilee is not this major central epicenter of activity and culture and commerce and influence. It's not like the capital of Israel. It's sort of this background place. Galilee was a blue-collar, working-class region in Israel. There was a lot of fishing that happened in Galilee because of the presence of the Sea of Galilee there. And even the Sea of Galilee is not some major, important, renowned, famous, noble sea. It's basically a big lake that's got some fish in it. The reason I am pointing all of this out is to say that this is a reminder that God can move in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. This was not a place you might think God is going to do something miraculous and incredible, which is what this story is really about, and yet that's where God moves. Let that be a reminder in your life and in my life that that area in your life that you, you think God would have no interest or involvement or activity in or that relationship you have with that person that seems to have nothing to do with the Lord, that might be the exact place where God wants to move in your life in this season. Sometimes the most significant things that God does in our lives begin in places that seemed really small and insignificant. I'll give you an example from my life. Lori, who's sitting way at the back today as to avoid me, uh, she, <laughs> thank you, she and I have been together for a long time. It'll be actually 15 years this August. That would have been a great place to clap. Come on, we went over this. Thank you. Please pray for her. Anyway, we've been together a long time. We got together when we were really young. Um, and people have asked us throughout the course of the journey. They've said, oh, you guys have been together for so long. And you, you know, had this high school romance thing and it's lasted this long. You must have had some sort of crazy origin story that kicked this all off. And I've said to people, you want to hear the origin story? We were in an elevator and a mutual friend introduced us. This is Braden. This is Lori. Hi. Hi. Ding. Elevator ride over. See you later. That was it. Didn't really seem like much at the time, but out of that has come something that's quite significant and important and central to my life. 
So that's just an example, but God can, see, God can move in any area and in any way in your life. Don't just discount the things that seem like, well, that's not a spiritual matter. That's not something God cares about. God is a God who moves, and he cares about every part of your life, and you would do well, and I would do well to investigate and explore uh, and think about every area of our life as to how God might move in it. So that's that, and now it goes on to say that the mother of Jesus was there. Now, the mother of Jesus has a name. Her name is Mary. The reason she's not named by name here, John, the writer of this book, he does this now and again. He, I'm sure, knows her first name, but he doesn't use the first name. He does that a number of times throughout this book. And the reason that he does that is because he doesn't want to draw extra attention to Mary here. He wants the emphasis and the attention to be on Jesus and not any of the other characters in this account. So that's why he calls her the mother of Jesus. It says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, the whole crew, the whole family's there. It's a great time. Until verse 3 where it says, the wine ran out. That's right. The wine ran out. You and I... Maybe you think that's a really big deal. I don't know. But in some ways, if you ran out of drinks when you had people over, for instance, you might not think much of it. Oh, well, I'll drive to the Irving. I'll get another drink or some more drinks, and then I'll come back, and it's no problem. But you have to understand, in this culture, in this day, this would have been incredibly, incredibly embarrassing. This was just something you didn't do. You don't run out of drinks. You don't run out of wine at a wedding. What kind of person does that? This was an opportunity on which ridicule could have come upon this family that had the oversight to not even have enough wine for this wedding. This was kind of a hosting fail is what it was. You ever had a hosting fail before? I've had numerous, I'm sure. I recall one years ago before I was married, I was living by myself and it was in Nova Scotia and I came back to New Brunswick for a few days to visit. And on the way back, I was picking up a friend, and he was going to stay at my place for the weekend. And when we got to Halifax, to my apartment, I opened the door, and a wall, just a wall you know, of, of smell. You know how you walk into a room and the wall of smell, you know what I'm talking about? It was the smell of garbage as soon as I opened my door. Because I had obviously forgotten to take my garbage out before I left, and it sat there for two or three days and just stunk the whole place up. I don't know what was in there, but as the old song goes, it was stinking to high heaven. It was not good. And so we bust out the Febreze. <sighs> Windows are open. It's like November, and every window in the place was open. It was quite embarrassing. How many of you would not love to be the host in a situation like that? Or maybe you've got something, you know, maybe even worse than that. We won't ask you to confess or share it this morning. That's what's going on here. This is a hosting fail. And again, culturally, this was a big deal. This would have been an opportunity for shame and ridicule to come on this family. And so the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's sort of a passive aggressive way of saying, boy, do something about this. What I find interesting about Mary, I've thought of her at times. She knows who Jesus is. She raised him. She's his mother. And maybe she doesn't get, you know, the complete full picture. Maybe she does. I don't know. But Mary knew who Jesus was. A lot of people, when they met Jesus for the first time, you'll read, like, they didn't really get it. They didn't really grasp it. But Mary knew because 
before Jesus was even born, you'll remember the story, the Christmas story. The angel came to Mary and said, you're going to conceive even though you're a virgin and you're going to bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is going to be the Lord. You're going to raise him. God himself is going to come among us and he's going to come through you. So she knows, she knows this baby, this child, this person is significant. We don't know a lot about Jesus' childhood, for instance, but we know that he never sinned. Parents, how many of you, you would know if there was a kid that never sinned, he'd look a little different than your kid. Don't raise your hand. So she knows. And I'm sure she didn't know what Jesus was going to do here. But there's even, even if there was just a flicker or a glimmer or a spark in her that said, I know Jesus can help with this. And she asked him. I just say that because sometimes that's how we come to Christ. Sometimes that is our first sort of foray into faith or Christianity. Sometimes people come into a situation or a crisis or some kind of an emergency and they've tried everything, they've exhausted their resources and they're at their wits end and they just cry out to God. Maybe they didn't even believe in God or, or know who they were talking to, but God, if there's a God out there somewhere, please help me. Maybe your story is something like that. It's kind of what's going on here. She just knows he can help. But Jesus answers her in verse 4 and says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? That looks like kind of bad, doesn't it? Men, I would just say, if you're trying to like get to know a lady better, that's probably not a title that I would bring out of your repertoire and use. You'll probably have the police called on you or get slapped or something, and rightfully so. And then he says, what does it have to do with me? He basically looks like he's being really rude and impolite and saying, this is not, that's not my problem. You go figure it out. Looks like, what is Jesus saying here? What you have to understand on verse 4 is that, as you know, the, our Bibles that we read in English, the Bible was not originally written in English. It was written in other languages like Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic and Greek. And it's been translated into all kinds of languages, including English, over the years. And you know how translation works. We can get the idea. We can get and capture the thought. But sometimes specific words don't really come out quite as crisply as you go from one language to another. That's kind of what's going on here. When Jesus says in our English Bible, woman, and looks like he's being really disrespectful and rude, and how could he say that? The original language, that word woman is actually better translated as ma'am or madam, which you still might think is a weird way to greet his own mother, but the point is this. He's actually being polite and respectful and honoring. Even though it doesn't look like that at first, Jesus is actually honoring his mother in the way that he answers that. And his reason why he says, what does this have to do with me? He says, my hour has not yet come. When Jesus uses that phrase, my hour, which he will quite often that's referring to a specific instance in his life and his ministry, and that was his death on the cross. When you see the words, my hour, my hour, it's Jesus' death. Jesus came to the earth, and he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died on a cross to pay for our sins. That ring a bell for anybody? Good. We have all sinned. We have all separated ourselves from God. We have all defiled and uh, gotten ourselves corrupted and unclean and Jesus came to deal with that it says in 1 John that the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil 
That's sin. That's the sin in our lives. Jesus came and through his death on the cross, it's by that means that we can be reconnected and reconciled to God and saved by God. So he's talking about his death. And Jesus' death, you have to understand, he was sort of on a divine timeline. Jesus had to do several things in his life, sort of just so, because he was the Messiah, he was the Christ. His life uh, had been prophesied about and predicted about. And so Jesus had to live in such a way that this timeline was upheld. You know how it is if you've seen Back to the Future? If you mess with time travel, you get off the timeline in that way, it can mess you up pretty good. It's like that just without the time travel. Jesus needs to make sure that he fulfills all kinds of prophecies, for instance. He's, he's born in a certain place of a certain tribe. He grows up and he lives a certain way. He fulfills all these prophecies. He dies in our place. You see, if Jesus fails to fulfill even one prophecy about the Christ, then he's not the Christ. He's not the one we need. He's not our Savior. He's a nobody. So he needs to preserve this timeline he's on. And so this miracle that he's going to do, he does it quietly so that he doesn't draw a whole bunch of extra attention to himself because he says, my time hasn't come yet. But his mother said to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. That's mom just getting her way. She says, I know how you feel, but here's how it's going to be, son. That's what happens there. Now, remember, we're party mixing today. We're trail mixing through this. We're talking about all kinds of different stuff. What I want you to see in this section that's on the slide right now, this isn't the point of this whole account, but it's something in here I wanted to point out. There's a little bit of conflict management happening here. Jesus and Mary aren't having like an explosive fight. It's not like they're on Jerry Springer and the fists are flying and they're bleeping out every other word. Like it's not a real big fight. It's not a real big argument or anything, but there's a disagreement on what should happen in the proceedings. Mary says, I want you to do something about it. Jesus says, I don't think I should. She says, but I really want you to. They're not really on the same page. What I want you to see is through all of that, they still honor and respect and cherish one another. And that is an art that as a society, we have utterly lost our ability to do that in 2022. If you have spent any amount of time on social media, you'll know that to be true. The way it works in our world is if I say this and you disagree with me, you're wrong, you're a bigot, you're narrow-minded, you're an idiot, you must watch fake news, we can't hang out. In fact, you're canceled. We live in a cancel culture and we just yell and scream at the other people see my hands we just villainize anyone that doesn't think or act like we do and what we're seeing here is Jesus has a better way than that and so as Christians as the people of God when we go out into the world and we represent Christ in the world we have actually a real opportunity here to not just go off into the ditch of hate and division and violence and, and, and all that that you see in the world, we have an opportunity to step in and really love people well and show that there's something different about us because Christ is in us. Is that good? Again, that's not really the point of the story, but we're just having fun. We're party mixing, and there it is. That's good. So let's keep going then. In verse 6, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. We're going to reach our hand in for a little something else here now. This verse, there's something called symbolism in that verse. Somebody say symbolism. If you don't know what symbolism is, it's a literary device that's used 
throughout the Bible. It's in all kinds of other literature. Symbolism is when a person or a place or a thing or some kind of an event is actually pointing to something else. This thing serves as a symbol of this other thing. I'll give you an example that you'll all understand. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard the officiant talking about the wedding ring, if you can see that from way in the back. This thing right here, I love my ring. This is a piece of metal. That's what it is. But you'll hear the officiant at a wedding say something along the lines of, when they're about to do the rings, they'll say, and this ring represents undying love or this unending relationship or your commitment to one another because a circle doesn't just happen to be the shape that will fit around your finger. A circle has no end point. It just goes on and on and on and on. Therefore, it represents this unending, undying love that this couple has that we're celebrating today. You've heard all that. Well, that's symbolism right there. It's something that represents something else. There's a whole bunch of symbolism in that verse right there. And I'll say this. When you're talking about symbolism in the Bible, the point is not to obsess over it and go looking on every little page under every little rock for things that might not even be there. Symbolism is not the point of the scriptures. But when you start to understand symbolism in the Bible, it helps you understand the depth of the word better. It helps you understand in a more sort of dynamic way how everything really ultimately points to Jesus. So we're going to do a little exercise in symbolism. Why not? We're right here. We're having fun. So there's several things. First of all, it says that there were six water jars there. How many were there? Numbers are often symbolic in the Bible. Not always, but a lot of times you see numbers, they're meaning something. They're representing something else. The number six in the Bible often represents incompletion and imperfection. Something's not quite right here. You might have heard that the number seven, for instance, represents completion and perfection and everything is right. Well, here's six. It's next door neighbor. It's not quite right. It's not quite there. Something's not all here with number six. Incompletion. Remember that. It says these six jars were for the Jewish rites of purification. One of the big parts of the Jewish cu uh, culture and custom were ritual washings. They would wash themselves with water to cleanse themselves of dirt or filth or impurity, uncleanness, sometimes as a representation of cleansing themselves from sin. Washing was a big deal. And these six jars each held 20 or 30 gallons. I'm a metric guy. I don't really do gallons. Someone just the other day was telling me, when I was young, gas was eight cents a gallon. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything to me. It's way too expensive now. That's what it means to me. 20 or 30 gallons is somewhere in the ballpark of 75 to 115 liters. So these are big, big jars. You could do a great deal of washing in these jars, a great deal of purifying. Let's sum up what we've seen so far. There's six jars, six represents incompletion, and here's these jars for purification. What that is saying is that any sort of man-made religious system is not enough to purify us before God. It's incomplete. Any sort of religious activity that we do is not enough to make us right before God because, as we already said, we need to be cleansed. We have sinned. 
The Bible says that our sin is like scarlet. We are filthy. We are corrupt. And we need to be cleansed. If we're going to roll on with God, if we're going to live the lives that God created us to live, a washing is necessary. A purifying is necessary. And it does not come through religious activity. It doesn't matter about your church attendance, but I am glad you're here. Church attendance doesn't save you. If you put money in the plate at church, that's not what saves you. You could sing all the songs, that doesn't save you. You can say grace before you eat supper at home later. That's, all those things are good, but none of them save you. They're an incomplete picture of salvation. Let's keep rolling. These jars, it said, were made of stone. You might not hear stone and think that's the most luxurious material in the whole world, it's believed that these jars, jars like this, would have been cut from one single rock, one single stone to make these. So that would involve a great deal of expertise and precision and craftsmanship. So don't miss that these stone jars, these would have been expensive. These would have been a status symbol. Somebody wealthy would have had these. And what that's reminding us of is that's not the path to salvation either. Your cleansing, your being right with God, it does not come from your wealth or your earnings or your status. You can toil and work and earn and struggle and strive your whole life, and that's not what makes you right with God either. Don't go down that road. It's not going to lead anywhere. Good news is the answer is also here symbolically. In this whole section of Scripture... We're talking about Jesus turning water into wine. Wine is also symbolic in the scriptures. Wine in the scriptures is often symbolic of blood. Blood. So here in this account, you've got these stone jars, these expensive things, You've got these religious rituals. You've got this need to be cleansed. You've got that there's something wrong and not complete. And Jesus comes along and he fills these jars ultimately with wine. What that's pointing us to is the way that we are cleansed, the way that we are made right with God, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. That would have been a good amen spot right there. That's all right. It's only through faith in Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his blood that was shed on our behalf, our faith in that, our trust in that, our acceptance and belief of that, that is the pathway for our cleansing. It's not what you do, it's about what Jesus has done for you. That is good news. That was symbolism. That wasn't so bad, was it? Good. Okay. All right. We'll move on for another dunk into the bag of party mix here then. Verse 7 Jesus says to the servants, fill these jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. You probably can see in that 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 is a sort of weird request. Fill these jars with water. Okay, that's fine. There's supposed to be water in them. Okay, good. Now take a ladle in, dip some out, and go get your boss to taste it. Why? Isn't he going to think that's weird? What's the purpose of this? Notice, though, how these servants responded. It was a seemingly weird request, but they didn't dig in their heels. They didn't kick and scream. They didn't say, no, I'm not doing it. Here's my idea. I don't like your way. They did it. They obeyed. They listened. They did what Jesus asked. 
even though it had the potential to maybe cost them. Like these guys had the potential to make themselves look like fools in front of their boss. Here, boss, taste this. It tastes like water. Thank you for the drink. Right? Th these guys are potentially even risking their employment to do this, but they do it anyway. Here's where we're getting down to the sort of main point of this account. A miracle takes place in this story. Jesus does a miracle. Our God is a God of miracles. And what I want you to see here is that, yes, yeah, sometimes God will do a miracle or he'll move or do something powerful or incredible in your life. We've seen a number of different things God has done. We know this to be true. Sometimes when God moves, he does it completely independently of you. Sometimes what we need to do is just get out of the way and let God move how he wants to move. You know what I mean? It just goes around us all together. But as is evidenced right here, sometimes the miracle happens as we respond in faith to something that God wants us to do. Again, I want you to see it. The pathway here. Jesus instructs. They obey. The miracle happens. Jesus instructs. They listen and act in faith even though it might have seemed strange to them. And then the miracle takes place. Maybe there is an area in your life where you are looking for God to move. You're looking for a miracle. You're looking for some sort of shift, something to change. God, please come and intervene. And maybe that thing is attached to something that God is actually wanting you to do. And so maybe, I don't know your situation, I don't know your need, but maybe, just maybe, you haven't seen God move yet because you haven't acted in faith to what he's asking you to do. You see that here? We try to play this little switcheroo with God. Guarantee you've done this, I've done this. We'll say, God, I would just believe in you. I would just trust you. I would be so happy if you would just do this thing for me, then I'll believe, then I'll trust. God says, actually, I'm not gonna do this thing for you until you trust me, until you have faith in me. I don't know what that might look like in your life, but we can see it clearly right there. Verse 9 says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. This guy's obviously a little bit of a cheapskate, but anyway. But he says, you have kept the good wine until now. I love that last sentence. You have kept the good wine until now. Not only does Jesus do this miracle, he didn't just make any old wine. He didn't make like wine out of a shoe or something. He makes the good wine, the best wine, the best portion. And that struck me so hard this week of a reminder of how God deals with us as his people. God deals so richly with us and so bountifully with us. He is so, so good to us. You see, God does not give us the leftovers or the scraps or the afterthought. It says in James chapter 1 that God is a giver of good and perfect gifts. Amen. Yes, that's right. It says in Luke 1.53 that God fills the hungry with good things. 
And I want you to know this morning that even if your life is not the greatest, you're in a bit of a rut, you're in a bit of a valley right now. Don't let that overshadow the fact that God is incredibly good and has been incredibly good in your life. Again, I don't know all that we've all gone through in here, but if you're a Christian, I want you to know that you are blessed. See, Satan will try to tell you, you're not blessed. Everything's wrong. God doesn't love you. God's forgotten. Christian, you are blessed. God has treated us so, 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 so well. Let's not forget that. Because when we get off of the path of gratitude, we start to feel entitled and, and like God has let us down somehow. No, when we keep the focus on thank you, God, for all that you've done for me, that brings rejoicing in the heart. That protects us from bitterness. That protects us from being mad at God when actually God's done nothing wrong. Because God is good to us. How many of you know that God is good today? Good. All right. Bringing us to our last bit of text then. It says in verse 11, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Capernaum ends up being sort of Jesus' ministry hub, his HQ, for a while. But what I want to really go at for the last bit of time I have today is verse 11. We're talking about miracles. And when we read this story, I mean, the Bible's making a pretty big claim in John chapter 2 here that Jesus did this impossible thing. He turned water into wine. How many of us have done that? I have not. It's a miracle, and it was a powerful miracle. And it leads us to make sure we answer the question, are miracles real? Because for a lot of people in the world, the fact that the Bible makes claims that miracles happen, that's enough reason for them to discount the Bible altogether. They say, I... I had a friend tell me once, I'm a real realist, he said. I'm a real realist. Uh, he appeals to things like logic and reason and science. And if you can't explain something away by logic or reason or science, then it must not be true. And since the Bible makes a bunch of claims like that, the Bible must not be true. God must not be real. So we've got to like deal with that. We've got to know where we stand on that. And the Bible actually gives us a little bit of a clue as to why a lot of people feel that way, why a lot of people have such a hard time with miracles. It says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person does not accept the things of God, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, it's great to appeal to reason and logic and science. Those things are all great. But if you stop there, you're missing a whole level. You're missing a whole layer. There's another court, a higher court, and that's the court of faith. That is the court of spiritual things happening. Faith is ultimately required if you're going to understand and get a little bit of a mind for the fact that miracles happen. It requires faith because we need to come to grips with the fact that sometimes in this life, things happen to us or through us or in us or around us that are bigger than we are. Sometimes things happen in this life that we can't explain and we can't just rationalize and reason away by some scientific formula. Because, friends, again, there is a God. There is a God. And the Bible says that his ways are higher than our ways. 
the way that he thinks, the way that he acts, the way that he moves, it's more than we can even wrap our little peanut-sized brains around. I wasn't insulting you, by the way. That's just the boat we're all in. God is not limited the ways that we are limited. God is not limited by time and space like we are. He's not held down by gravity like we are. He is not uh, having an age like we are and an expiration date. He does not get limited by things like fatigue and tiredness. He's God all the time, and his ways are higher than our ways. We can't put him in a little box. And this God who is far greater than we can understand, this God who is all-present and all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful, this God moves in human history and he moves in human circumstances. When you start to get onto this program in your mind, it starts to make total sense that things like miracles can happen. Things can happen that you don't understand because you have faith in a God who is bigger than you can understand. So to dismiss miracles, like so many people do, on the premise of it makes me look and feel smarter, that's not how it looks from where I'm sitting, I'll be honest with you. If you just dismiss the possibility of miracles, what it looks like to me is that you're too proud to admit that you don't know everything and understand everything. But on the flip side, to accept the possibility of miracles does not make you weak or stupid or flimsy or some religious washed up person. What that tells me is that you are comfortable with the idea that there's a God that's bigger than you and sometimes he does things that you can't control or explain or reason away because that's God. That's what God does. So we don't have to be ashamed about miracle accounts in the Bible. We don't have to try to make excuses for them or say, oh, that must not have really happened. This really happened. This took place. God did this. Jesus did this miracle. It's part of our story. It's part of who our God and our Savior and our King, Jesus, is. So let's not shy away from these kind of things. This is legit. Some people then will say, okay, well, sure, this happened. It was a miracle. That's great. But some people say, well, do miracles still happen today? There are some branches of Christianity that would say, yeah, Jesus did this miracle and others, and he sort of passed that ability on to the apostles uh, who established the church and kind of carried things forward and, and bore witness about Jesus, and that's cool. But after the apostles died off, we, we didn't need all these miracles and things anymore. They, they haven't happened for hundreds of years. And they'll appeal to a verse like 1 Corinthians 13, 10, which says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. They say that Jesus is the perfect that it's talking about, and he's already come. So these partial things like miracles and healings and all this stuff doesn't happen anymore. Here's the problem with that. Yes, in 1 Corinthians 13, 10, Jesus is the perfect. That's who it's talking about. But what it's talking about is his second coming. It's talking about when he comes again. Friends, Jesus is coming again. He's not done here yet. He's coming again, and when he does, he's going to bring this age to a close. He is going to usher in his kingdom in its fullness. And those of us who believe in him and belong to him are going to get to go and roll on with him in a place where all is new and all is good and all is right and all is perfect. That's what's happening here. So yes, miracles still happen today. Hebrews 13, 8, you see it right there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he was powerful and glorious and able back then, guess what, friend? He's powerful and glorious and able today. If Jesus did something back then, he is more than capable of doing it again now and on into the future. 
And some of you guys have straight up seen that that's true. Some of us have seen miracles. Maybe it's been done in your life to you or maybe someone close to you. We have witnessed these things to be true. And that's great. That's awesome. Let those things serve as a reminder of God's power and goodness. Let those things fuel your worship of God. Miracles still happen today. But guess what? Even if we don't see the miracle. See, because it might not happen. God might not choose to move in that way that we think he will. Miracles certainly don't happen a lot, right? That's kind of the definition of a miracle. If it happened all the time, regularly, it wouldn't be a miracle. It would just be an everyday thing. But even if we don't see the miracle, even if it never happens the way we think God should make it happen, guess what? We're still going to praise. We're still going to love. We're still going to honor and serve the Lord Jesus because he is unchanged. Even if the circumstance doesn't go the way we want it to, God is still good. God is still on his throne. He is still in control. He is still worthy of praise. Somebody help me out if you agree today. Yes. What I want to do then the bag of parity mix is almost empty. We're almost to the bottom. I want to wrap this up with just a reminder and a refresher and an encouragement about what the purpose of miracles is. We've established that they are real. They still happen today, but I don't want us to miss the reason why miracles happen. They do happen for specific reasons. It's not just miracle. When a miracle happens, it's not supposed to be a party trick. Oh, that was cool, Lord, awesome. On to the next thing. Nor are miracles the point of our faith. We don't just roll on with God to see some of the cool things that he can do. That's shallow. That's like the friend that wants to hang out with you when you've got $20 in your pocket. Because they might get some of that. But when the $20 leaves your pocket, the friend leaves. Well, this is not what God is calling us to. Miracles have specific purposes. I'm going to show you three of them that are in this text in John 2. And we're going to go in reverse order from least to most important. You got all that? You ready now? Okay, the third reason that miracles happen, it's to benefit the recipient. In this account in John chapter 2, the wedding party ran out of wine. That's a problem. That's not good. And part of Jesus moving and doing that miracle was to bless them. You were out of wine, now you got wine. Awesome. Praise the Lord. There's nothing wrong with receiving the blessing from it. When God moves in power, when God does a miracle, maybe God has done a physical healing of some sort in your life, or maybe he's, given a, 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 he's met some financial need that you had or some relational challenge. There's nothing wrong with saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that gift. We already read James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. God gives us gifts, and he gives it to us for our blessing and our benefit and our enjoyment. So we ought to let these things, when God moves and comes through in your life, you should let that fuel your worship. You should let that fuel your gratitude for Jesus. Because that's part of the reason he did that, is for you, for your benefit. Slightly more important now. Number two, miracles happen so that people's faith would increase. Somebody say faith. You can see it in verse 11. Jesus did the miracle, he did the sign, and it goes on to say, and his disciples believed in him. We've talked about that word believe before. It's not just some mental thing in your mind that doesn't mean anything. Belief, yeah, affects your mind, but it affects your heart. It affects your soul. It affects the works of your hands. Belief is all-encompassing. It changes us. Miracles are not supposed to happen, so we say, oh, 
thanks Jesus for the cool miracle, now see you never, and you just walk off and don't go on with them. No, the miracle happens so that you will put more faith and more trust in Jesus because you see him come through in a powerful, tangible, timely way in your life, and it's a reminder that he's good. It's a reminder that he's able and powerful, and that gives us confidence in him. And I want you to know, like, having more faith in Jesus and more trust in Jesus like, do you not think that would change the way that you live a little bit if you had more faith in him and more confidence in him? You see, it's like this. The more we are filled with faith and trust and confidence in Jesus, just by default, the less room there is in our lives for things like worry and fear and panic and doubt and dread and anxiety. There's no place for those, the more confidence we have in Jesus. So that miracle happens so that your faith in Jesus Christ would increase. Last one, the most important thing about this, miracles happen so that God would be glorified. In verse 11, you can see it. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and he manifested his glory. So first of all, that word sign, the first of his signs, you guys know how signs work. They're supposed to point to something. If you are on the highway and you see a directional sign, St. John East, that way, great. Maybe you're driving along and you see an informational sign, like a billboard. Uh, there's one right out my window for Arby's. So when I look out the window and I'm hungry, I just see this big beef and cheddar sandwich looking at me. That's informational. Go to Arby's and get a sandwich, Braden. Maybe it's a distance marker sign. St. John, 34 kilometers. That points you to how soon you'll get there. I brought a prop with me today. I think we've got a picture to show. I think so. There's these kind of signs too. This is a real thing. This actually is not all that far from here. This is in Oromocto. In Oromocto, they've got these traffic circles instead of traffic lights in some places. And in the middle of the roundabout, there's greenery or shrubs or flowers or whatever. And in several of them, they've got these signs that say, no signs allowed. The irony is not lost on me. Thank you, town of Oromocto. We needed the sign there to tell us that we can't have any signs here. Thank you for that. That ministers to me. You can just go ahead and leave that there. I just like that. That just works for me. This miracle that Jesus did, it's called a sign here. So the sign, the miracle, is supposed to point to something else. It's supposed to point to who Jesus is. It's supposed to point to the fact that he is glorious. He is able. He is powerful. He is strong. He is significant. He has authority. He is someone that you ought to be paying attention to. The emphasis when you read John chapter 2, the wrong thing to see is, oh, the emphasis is on the miracle, the cool thing that Jesus did. No, the emphasis in John chapter 2 is on the one who did the miracle, Jesus Christ. It said that this miracle manifested his glory. Somebody say manifest. The word manifest means to dis display or to show. Jesus showed, displayed his glory. We've talked about glory. That's the weight of something, the sheer impact, magnitude, awesomeness of something. Jesus has glory. Jesus is glorious. It says in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That's who he is. And that glory, just the fact that that's his nature, it just exudes from him onto other stuff around it. I'll give you an example, and I apologize for this one a little bit. 
If you've ever been driving in the car with someone and someone in the vehicle has feet that smell really bad, you know it, you know it. It's their feet, it's their stink, it's their problem, but before long that starts to kind of waft off of them and, and fill the car and pretty soon you're out the window gasping for breath driving down the highway at 120. In a much better way, that's what, <laughs> that's what God's glory is like. Oh, I couldn't get through it. No, what I'm saying is this is who Jesus is and his glory radiates out from him. It's revealed and manifested and displayed to us. You know why? Because he wants us to see it. This is not just a demonstration of Jesus' glory. This is an invitation to experience his glory. Jesus is God. Jesus is the glory of God on display. He is significant and important and powerful. He is actually the reason for it all. He is the center and the substance and the essence of true living. He, as Christians, is our hope and our Savior and our Lord and our King and our friend and our Master. Would you agree with that today? And when we acknowledge Jesus as such, when we come into a place where we are focused on giving glory to God, putting Jesus first, exalting him in our lives, we, what comes over us is such a blessing, such a peace, such a hope, such a joy, because that is the place that we are supposed to occupy in this life. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus sitting on the throne of our hearts and being exalted and glorified and put first in our lives. That is ultimately what this miracle was about. That's ultimately what this story was about. That's ultimately what the scriptures are about. It's all about Jesus Christ. And if you know him today, what he's calling you to do is experience him for who he is. Put him first in your life, that area of your life where you're running from God or hiding from God. Put Jesus first. That is where he needs to be. And if you don't know Jesus yet, if you've never confessed him as your Lord and Savior, he is calling you to do so. He loves you. He died for you. He paid a price for you so that you could be saved, so that you could live the life you were born to live. It is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. I want you to say that with me with some gusto. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. Let's give him some praise together right now. Come on.